At 252 pounds, he is indeed the wrestler who made Milwaukee famous, the one, the only, the crusher. Out of Paradise Valley, Arizona, at 268 pounds, the superstar, Billy Graham. The all-time great professional wrestling, weighing 322 pounds, Larry the Axe Hennings. A very flamboyant. Jesse, the body, and Cora. Beat. That's Mr. Beat. You announced me as Mr. Beat. Your thoughts, Mad Dog. All the men and all power in football. Here is Wahoo, that's Daniel. From Manchester, England, the British heavyweight wrestling champion, the man of a thousand and one holes, the great Billy Levinson. Weighing 254 pounds from San Francisco, I think Bird Ganya got his chance and took full advantage of it. Bird Ganya, and he isn't done yet. What I'd like to have right now, where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Welcome to another edition of. Where the big boys play, and uh, we're gathered here today to talk about the AWA. Chad, you can't get enough of the AWA, can you? Uh, no, we have talked about the AWA on the phone now for about half a day in total, and uh, hopefully we can of that produce a podcast for everyone to listen to. So, I mean, uh, on the show notes, clearly there'll be uh, four different guests appearing on this. Uh, do you care to explain what happened, why we've got some bits of the show with Dylan and Brian and some bits with uh, Pete and Peter here? Uh, I guess the simplest explanation is we record a show at the very f- uh, first weekend in August, actually. Uh, a very long show with uh, Dylan Hales and Brian Samick. And then we... Uh, went into our post-production editing process and discovered that the vast majority of that show is in the podcast-based time zone. Uh, it was lost in the annals of time. So we lost about two hours of that, and now we're going to regroup and through a bevy of kind of scheduling errors and having to cancel and all that stuff. Now we have had... Uh, two other individuals to step in for us and they both watched the uh, entire set too and are both very knowledgeable so i think uh you're getting actually more than your money's worth because you'll get four expert guests on this show instead of the two we originally had yeah four expert guests and me and you chad so (laughs) (laughs) um so uh pete and peter uh you're kind of making your debuts here your semi-official debuts uh pete your shoe on the forums right that's right and uh, well, you, you've already done one show with me, the uh, the new Titans of Wrestling show that, that I'm doing. 
Um, and you're going to be part of that as an ongoing basis. But uh, you've listened to uh, Where the Big Boys Play for some time, so glad to have oh, yeah. you on. <laughs> yeah, I've been listening from the beginning. And uh, yeah, I tell you, uh, I remember, Chad, uh, Shu didn't like our commercial talk, did he? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that uh, helped us that helped us i mean that yeah. that uh i always welcome that that that's kind of the same thing with uh nwa fan i mean we always <laughs> welcome that and i think from that we've really sort of hit our groove where we've sort of realized that between me and you part the wrestling analytical side is kind of our bread and butter and what we do best yeah <laughs> and uh, our other guest uh oh, wh- where are you from actually pete uh, uh, well, where I'm living now, or I'll, I'll do a brief history. Yeah. I was born in New York, moved to Chicago, moved to St. Louis, and now lived, moved to Houston, Texas, and now I'm living in Austin, Texas. Right. So did, did you uh, watch much AWA growing up? Not at all. Just what was on ESPN during, during the dying days. Right. Okay. So, so where would you, like, during the 80s, where would you have been based? I would have been based here in, in Houston, and I've been watching like uh, world class and uh, mid south, and then really towards the end uh, was the NWA. You get right a, before the rocket buyout. We'll, we'll do this another time, Pete. But uh, did you get any of those Paul Boss shows? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, great. I look forward to talking to you about them. And uh, Peter, confusingly, <laughs> uh, PF3 on the boards. Uh, you're also joining us. And uh, you're uh, on the west coast. There is that right? Actually, I'm in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, uh, Ohio. Yes. Now, Ohio. Uh, remind me where that is. In the, uh, in, in just, the... south, just south of Michigan, just north of Kentucky, right. just west of Pennsylvania. You know, I'm sure I had a friend from Ohio once, and I was like, tell me about Ohio. And he said, there's nothing to say. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. It's a, it comes up uh, every uh, national election time. I guess there's that. There's, it has that going Yeah, there for you it. go. Ryan, did you grow up uh, watching AWA, Peter? Uh, I'm in the same boat as uh, other Pete. I basically just saw it on ESPN, but I did have basically every uh, AWA action figure, so I was very familiar with the roster, even though I hadn't actually seen any of them wrestle. <laughs> and what, what sort of uh, figures did they have? Was there a little Nick Bockwinkle? I actually didn't have Bockwinkle, but I had um, I had the High Flyers, the Road Warriors, and of course the Ric Flair and Carlos Colon figures because they were so synonymous with the AWA but um, <laughs> they were they were actually better figures than the uh, big LJN rubber ones you know I was thinking like a Jerry Blackwell figure that's a hell of a lot of plastic well the one <laughs> the one drawback to the AWA figures is they had two bodies they had ripped to shreds bodybuilders and then just a lean body so like Jimmy Garvin Stan Hansen and Crusher Blackwell all had the same uh, mold which didn't always work <laughs> um yeah. Okay. Well, uh, right. Really confusingly now for anybody listening to this, there's going to be a weird moment where I uh, magically clip in some like Bobby Heenan, Nick Bockwinkle promos or something, and when we come back, the show will start again with uh, with Brian and Dylan <laughs> as we take you into the history of the AWA. There's a lot of talk over the past few weeks regarding the incredible Hulk Hogan. You, and mean, ha- wait, you mean incredible Sulk Hogan? You see, what happens is. The man failed to get the job done. Now, you can put it any way you want. His explosive makeup, you know what he is. He cannot control himself. He blew it. He blew it completely. 
he couldn't get the job done. So what's he? Is he at home now? Mommy's fixing bacon and eggs. Well, you know what amazes me? He comes into the ring with a shirt that says, We want the belt. He's talking about Hulkamania. I'm going to do this for the people. I'm going to win the championship for the people. Where is he right now? Do his people know where he is? The Incredible Hulk, he's sulking someplace. He's the Incredible Sulk Hogan. He's probably at home in Venice Beach, California, and his mother's back has just gone out trying to get him out from under the bed. He's probably hiding under there, whining and crying. Big six foot eight, 380 pounds of him, whining and crying because he didn't get the job done. He didn't let you down or me down. Wait. He let you humanoids down. And you're used to being down, so you enjoy it. Hulk Hogan, we've heard the last of you, seen the last of you, and I can breathe a little easier. Wahoo McDaniels goes in the That's same really, vein. Yeah. Him and Von Raschke and everybody else, especially the Indian. It takes the ring post for him to get a victory. He's talking about how he beat the world's champion. He wants this and he wants that. Hey, pal, go back and knit some blankets and stay out of our business. Let me, go ahead. Let me just say one thing. Wahoo McDaniels since Hulk Hogan, see if you can borrow his crying towel. Because if you can only accomplish a victory by using a ring post, you're a sad representation, not only of your race, of as far as I'm concerned, the sport of professional wrestling, because you are a total failure. Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Well, hello everyone. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. And as ever, I'm here with uh, Chad. How are you, Chad? Doing great. And, uh, well, making a welcome return to the show, chap who was on some of the very earlier shows, Brian Samek. How are you doing, Brian? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I think the last time you were on, Brian, there was like a thunderstorm. And you had like, was that yeah. right? Do you remember? Yeah. And you my lost power, your voice? <laughs> my power went out and I disappeared for about a year and a half. <laughs> well, on that appearance, I seem to remember you saying, Brian, um, something along the lines of, we should do a show on AWA. Hint, yeah, hint, yeah. Hint. Do you remember you said that? I, I clearly do. I mean, for me, I know we can get into it a little bit later, but uh, <laughs> it, it's what got me into wrestling, but we can get into that a little bit later. So joining us, uh, joining the panel as well, uh, it's my privilege to welcome Dylan. Uh, are you one of these guys like Charles Dylan who doesn't like your second name being out there? Oh, I don't care at all, actually. Uh, it, <laughs> it doesn't bother me in the least. Uh, my, I mean, I've had relatively well-known people in American life pay me way too much money to write about pro wrestling using my actual name. So <laughs> if, if, if I was in hiding, it's over. <laughs> uh, so, well, it's, uh, it's Dylan Hales, uh, a chap who we've mentioned probably a lot of times, Chad, here and there. So if you, uh, if, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, here he is. He, he's a co-host of a, of a very good podcast called uh, Wrestling Culture. Um, who have, uh, well, I mean, there are many areas of overlap with, uh, with uh, what we do here. Their recent Lex Luger show was great. They did an interview with the Crockett, uh, the guy who made the Crockett documentary, uh, which is out now, right? Yes, it uh, actually it debuted two nights ago. Right. Uh, I, 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 need yeah. to, I need to pick that up. Um, I, and, think they sh- I think they started shipping it uh, Saturday. Yep. But it, yep. If uh, if you're a listener to this show and you've never heard the Wrestling Culture podcast, uh, I think Brian said it before the show. You need to sort your life out and uh, yes. and, uh, and subscribe to that ASAP. Do, you, do yourself a favor and listen to it. I'm not I'm not a big person to kiss a lot of ass, but I'll give. I mean, you guys do that. The Wrestling Culture podcast is fantastic with a bunch of the stuff you guys have been through. So kudos. Um, okay, so, well, 
the uh, purpose of today's uh, special show, we're taking a departure from uh, the NWA to look at the AWA, um, the last uh, Death Valley Driver 80s project was uh, was on the AWA, and uh, I have very recently, as late as 5 a.m. last night, <laughs> completed my watching of uh, all 150 matches now, um, and I thought uh, there's a lot of things to talk about, a lot of things about the AWA in general we can touch on, and I thought it would be a good idea to have like a roundtable discussion on it. But before we do that, uh, I do realize that not everyone who listens to this show um, is from the kind of Death Valley Driver, PWO neck of the woods. So, D- Dylan, did, you were sitting on the AWA committee. Can you maybe talk us through uh, how that works? How do you get the 150 matches that you put on the set? What is Death Valley Driver, etc.? Sure, I'll do this as briefly as possible, which is not always easy for me. So feel free to tell me to stop if I'm going in too much detail. Um basically the way uh several years back there was a decision to go back and try and review the best matches of the 80s uh on a website called uh the death valley driver which has been around forever really since the onset of of uh wrestling and the internet in the mid 90s um the idea was uh that you would basically curate an exhibit and have people review the exhibit rather than it be a total free-for-all where people are just voting for whatever match they feel like. So the way it works is you get a, commi- a committee of people. Usually it's three people. Occasionally there will be some people that will have a little bit of input that are experts on whatever the promotion is. Um, like with this set, uh, Kay Hawk, who uh, a lot of people may or may not know, but he's like pretty much the resident expert on all AWA things, uh, footage, history, etc. Around the web, he helped out even though he wasn't directly on the committee. But basically, what happens is three people uh, watch everything that we can find from uh, the relevant time period of whatever the promotion may be. Uh, in this case, you're talking about uh, a few hundred different discs uh, of wrestling um, covering literally everything that we could locate. Uh, whether it be TV, you know, special matches, even interview segments uh, for the 1980s uh, in the AWA. Uh, I was actually the first leg of, of the viewing process. There's three legs. You kind of shift the disc around, and that's how the team works. It's the most efficient way to do it. And uh, so I actually probably watched uh, a little bit more than the other guys because as it usually happens – on the second leg and the third leg, uh, squash matches and stuff like that don't always get watched. Um, and yeah, on the first that, leg, you have to watch everything. <laughs> that was one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, Dylan. Do you watch all the squash matches, all of the yes. TV segments, absolutely everything, right? Yes. I, I, I um, And really, I, I think uh, myself and, and, you know, I, I don't want to speak for everybody who's ever participated in the 80s project, but there's not a huge group of people um, that are that are part of the committees. Uh, in, in this case, it, it was uh, uh, you know the person responsible for putting the sets together, uh, Good Helmet, uh, and uh, uh, Chris uh, Chris Chris E, uh, who who were on the committee with me. Um, and in this case, I think all of us probably watched darn near everything because I think all of us are pretty pretty completist in the way we look at stuff. But uh, yeah, you watch everything. You don't really because you never know. You know, there might be a a seven-minute 
TV squash that might be relevant to a storyline or might actually turn out to not be a squash. You know, there's one or two matches that ended up making this set that um, on paper you wouldn't necessarily think would have any chance of making the set. So you, you kind of have to. Right. And, and in terms of selecting the 150, is it mainly geared towards the best quality stuff or is it geared towards historical importance or balance between the two of those things? I'm very glad you asked that question because here's here this is uh, with the AWA it was a little bit maybe easier than with other sets because with with certain other sets because their expectations are what there are and because they're sort of uh, become a uh, you know there's a historical narrative that sort of developed around certain matches or feuds you almost feel compelled <laughs> to put certain things on a set even if the entire panel thinks they the matches stink <laughs> you can't you you have to I mean. That sort of happened, I think, with the New Japan set, where the consensus among the panel was that the Tiger Ma- that a lot of the Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid matches really didn't hold up and weren't all that good, but they knew they couldn't leave them off the set because the criticism would be so high uh, they had no choice. Right. Um, in this case, we were fortunate because the matches that probably have had the greatest reputation coming in, their reputation was deserved. <laughs> so yes. we were... we the things that you felt the pressure to put on, they would have made it on on their merits anyway. Um, as far as, you know, uh, things that got on for historical purposes, uh, there might be one or two things that we covered that didn't necessarily need to be covered because there were so many versions of the, of a match um, uh, that you felt like if there was a decent one or a good enough one that it deserved to be on the set. But for the most part, this is, a you know, a, a pretty good composite of what uh, the people viewing thought was was the best of the best. I mean, you're never going to get 100% consensus. These are definitely the 150 best matches. But the goal is to get as close to that as possible, not leave anything obvious off. You don't want to leave anything that would have finished in somebody's top 50 off. Right. Um, yeah, but you're never going to get 100% consensus. But the goal is to get as close as you possibly can to that uh, sort of uh, ideal perfect uh, set. Well, thank you very much for that explanation, Dylan. Did, did Brian and Chad, do you have any uh, questions for Dylan about the, the actual process that went into making the uh, this particular set? I just wanted to ask Dylan a quick question. I know as the years go back, I'm thinking you get into the earlier 80s, 83, 82, 81, a lot of the uh, the television gets a little more sparse, I'm guessing. At that point, were you getting, getting a chance to see a lot more of the, the arena matches that were available? Uh, yeah, the, you know, I mean, Brian, you know this because I've followed your posting habits for a long time on the various message boards where we both, uh, are frequent people. Um, uh, I, I, the farther back you go in the AWA, what you see is a lot of joined in progress matches or clip matches. And, uh, that was actually probably the toughest decision on this set was, okay, how much of a match, you know, can we have missing and still justify putting it on the set. And sort of the consensus we reached was you needed to have at least two-thirds of the match. If you if you if it was only half, it just felt wrong to put it on. So there was a couple of matches that were that were pretty good, uh, like a Tito Santana versus uh, Billy Robinson match, where you have about half the match, I think from eighty or eighty-one, that we just couldn't justify putting on as a one fifty proper because it wasn't wasn't the whole match. It wasn't even close to it. But if you go to the early part of the eighties, like you said, there's not a lot of TV that exists or that that I know that exists in full form 
So it mostly is arena matches and mostly, although not always, joined in progress or maybe a little bit missing or a little bit clipped. Right. Um, well, one of the reasons I really wanted to do this show is because uh, I think it's fair to say that perhaps more than any other uh, territory or promotion um, that has gone out of business, the AWA has certain preconceptions and associations with it um, that are, I would say, tending towards the negative. Okay, um, I, I think we're all reasonably familiar with what that view is, that it's slow, it's full of old guys, um, that it's uh, boring, uh, it's old-fashioned. I mean, is everybody uh, familiar with that kind of narrative? I know our um, our friend uh, Chad Scott uh, Criscolo, uh, you know, on the Place to Be uh, podcast, usually when AWA is brought up, it's done with a sigh and a kind of begrudging... Uh, you know, he associates it with all of the things I just said. Um, one of the things I wanted to do just before we uh, get into this discussion is maybe go round um, each of the members of the panel here um, and ask you to like cast your mind back to like before you were involved with this project or before you watched the set. To what were your preconceptions of the AWA maybe growing up or before you really became a kind of hard, hard, hardcore fan? I'll, I'll go with you uh, first, Chad. Um, I mean, when I got this set, probably the thing I was most looking forward to with the set was watching uh, some of the guys that I was most familiar with with their WWF work, like, a, you know, Mr. Perfect or a Hulk Hogan, even some of these guys uh, kind of in the beginning or the onset of their career. Uh, that was probably the thing I was most looking forward to was seeing them. I mean, I, I did have the preconceived notions of what the general thing is that AWA was not willing to change with the times or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I think I'm pretty lenient in liking a bunch of wrestling that a lot of people don't like. So I figured I would mostly enjoy the action as far as the matches that were selected. But uh, that was probably the thing going in that I was most looking forward to. And uh, Brian, I, I, I do think, uh, but Brian, before you even say anything, that um, you, you're a little bit unusual in that you are pretty much somebody who has extremely fond memories of AWA. You're, you kind of look at it as the same way, with the same kind of fondness that a lot of people look on, you know, WF and other promotions, right? I do. I mean, I it's I, I would consider all dance salivate all over it. I don't know why, but for me, I mean, from the age of seven to eleven, from eighty five to eighty nine, it's what got me into wrestling. It's you know the bloodbath in September with the Rockers of eighty six, with the Rockers and Rose and Summers took me from a fan to just you know all I wanted to watch was wrestling, and then uh, seeing Bachwinkle and Henning at the end of eighty six made it obsessive for me. I, I just there's so many memories I have from watching the AWA growing up on, especially on ESPN, which is all I got to see living in Pittsburgh. And it's just one of those things where I couldn't wait to run home to see it. It didn't have the, the glitz and the glam and, and of even a, of uh, WWF in that, that time in the eighties. But for me, it had that more just, just feel of, wow, this is a wrestling match. These are two guys that are just going at it to fight each other, hold for hold. It, it had a lot more believability to me. And it took all the lights and that away and just made you focus on these guys are in the ring. They've got to make this look good and nothing else around. It's going to, you know, enhance it. They've got to give it to you plain and simple. Yeah. And 
one of the one of the um, it was a talking point I think Will brings up on the uh, the eighties party podcast. You know the watch throughs they did. Uh, Brian, I, I know you've listened to a few of those. Um, he mentions that one of the differences between this set and a lot of the other sets they've done is that there aren't that many people who have like a vested emotional interest in uh, a lot of the guys uh, involved in the AWA. Like, I, I think he made the point that like nobody had like a Nick Bockwinkle poster on the wall. Nobody really kind of cares when people talk about Bockwinkle as a, you know, greatest of all time type candidate is done kind of grudgingly. Uh, no, but but you, you 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 are that guy, right? You were the kind of kid with oh, the Bockwinkle poster on the walls. I was. I, I, honest to God, you know, I was eight, eight years old when everybody and their brother was Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan. I'm liking this plus 50-year-old guy, you know, in the ring with his with his uh, 60s hairdo almost. And I don't know why he sold himself so well. I just He had that I'm better than you, that, that I'm better than you interview style that it wasn't over the top. And it just hooked me. Um, and that's the end of his career. You know, as I've got into collecting wrestling and stuff over the years, uh, I've got to see a lot more of him earlier. And it just, just made me like him even, even more. And I, honestly, without the AWA, even when I decided to go back and start really getting into the history of wrestling in the early 2000s, I don't think I would have gone back to start diving into a lot of the stuff I've learned to come and love over the years without, you know, wanting to find the, the, the two matches of the both the Rockers match and the Bachwinkle Hennig 60-minute draw. Without those, I don't even go back and get into know what I know now. And, and Dylan, do, do you think that uh, comment from Will was fair? That it, it's basically a promotion that people have far less emotional vested interest in than, say, Crockett or uh, WF, for example? Well, I think it. Uh, I, I don't think it's unfair. I think it's it, it's a promotion that was never really. Um, a target of anything like this prior, a target, <laughs> but it was never really focused on, uh, prior to this in any, any way. I mean, aside from, uh, K Hawk, of course, who I mentioned earlier, who's done God's work, uh, challenging <laughs> for AWA footage and putting together some excellent sets on various wrestlers and time periods in the promotion. There really hasn't even been within the tape trader community. I still use that term tapes because that's when I started doing this, that's what it was. But, um, there really was never a, a heavy focus on the AWA. I don't want to say that it was completely ignored because I think that would be a minor exaggeration, but it's not just that, uh, you know, people didn't, ha I think people did have an emotional investment if you lived where the AWA's, uh, epicenter was. I mean, if you, if you look back now at how those fans are reacting, uh, and how, how interested they were and how invested they were in these guys, obviously, it was a hot promotion uh, during its high point up until really about the middle of 85 when the bottom sort of fell out business-wise. But, um, you know, when we think, as, as Americans especially, I can tell you, and, I, I, you know, Americans see everything through the lens of the East Coast. You always hear about East Coast media bias and whatnot, and that's just the way it is. I mean, it's just a fact. Uh, you know, East Coast and then L.A., and uh, obviously, the AWA wasn't really associated. It wasn't really associated with e uh, any of the major media markets aside from Chicago, which is sort of an island unto itself. So I think, even though um, I think it might be a mild exaggeration to say there was no emotional investment uh, from people, because there was. It's just they were people in what is 
often pejoratively referred to as flyover country, who were the who were the big fans, and uh, the people on the coast and the and the other areas didn't really know much about it or care much about it. I mean, it's not fair, but that's just kind of the way it was. <laughs> no, um, just just for my just to kind of uh, give us a picture here. I mean, the AWA's uh, kind of stomping ground was. Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, and I have to say, if I said to one of my friends, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, they would probably think I was talking about Superman or something. So, what, I mean, where, where is that? Where is that in the country? And is that like a heavily populated area? Are there a lot of people there? Is it? Was it an important it is. wrestling market? It, is. it was an extremely important wrestling market. It was a rich wrestling market going back uh, years and years and years and years and years. Actually, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Stetcher family, who are, you know, if you go back and study wrestling history far enough back, were pretty important people. Um, they, I think, controlled Minneapolis before, uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area before Vern did, um, Vern Gagne. Uh, my father, uh, his side of the family is actually from Minnesota originally, which is one of the reasons I was excited to do this set, because... I have uh, my great grandfather actually knew Vern Gagne and Luthez actually, um, so I was I was excited to do this set in part because of those roots. But Minneapolis St. Paul it's not you know it's not uh, in the uh, upper tier of large American cities, but it's in the uh, you know it's in the Great Lakes region. Uh, it's very very Minnesota obviously borders Canada, um, and, and the Twin Cities are, it's a big metropolitan area. I mean, it's not a small area by any stretch of the imagination. It's not, uh, you know, Chicago was the biggest city in the AWA territory in terms of actual size, population, metropolitan area. Um, but the Twin Cities were uh, a large, would have been a large city then and would still be considered a large market now, fairly large market now. Ooh, you bet I got something to say. You check it out. Ooh, the most beautiful body in professional wrestling. And I got something to talk about. Everywhere I've been going throughout the country, I've been touring with Fleetwood Mac. I've been partying with REO Speedwagon. Why, I've even arm wrestled the Werewolf of London, Warren Zevon. Well, let me tell you something about Chico Santana. Tito. Chico. You know, a few years back, there was a show on television called Chico and the Man. Now you got Chico, and right in front of you, Jack, you got the man. The body. The body, the man. Well, you know, it's not often mean, Gene, the champions go looking for challengers. Generally, it's the other way around. The challengers look for the champions. I am the hottest thing in professional wrestling. I am the baddest dude that walks the streets today, Chump Hogan. And you think about that, Chump, because you could not beat me. You could not even beat Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky III. It was a draw. I'd have squashed that peanut in 30 seconds. I'm going to pick up that big Andre. I'm going to press the dude once, oh press the dude twice, Jesse, and then toss him right out of the ring. And Adrian and I are going to walk with 50 grand when just the two of us are left. Ain't that right, Adrian? Wait, wait, wait. Have you checked out the lateral deltoid lately? The check lateral deltoid? Mm, check that out. Everybody's chicken to wrestle me. You know why? Because I have a good habit of making people physically exhausted after wrestling matches. They cannot get their breath because I am like a vegematic out there. I slice and dice and I tear people apart. Everybody's chicken to wrestle me. Because, baby, we are the best. We are the best of the 80s. 
You know, that kind the of East talk... east-west connection. Sooner or later, gentlemen, you will eat your words. You can't be that overly confident, really. Never, baby, never. You might eat that mic. And I want to say oh. hi to Phil Lesh and Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead. Mmm, check it out. I get more beautiful looking every day. Yeah. So now we're back, and we're going to talk about um, some of the uh, kind of experience of watching this set. Um, because, I mean, it seems to me that there's really three distinct different periods uh, documented on the ACs here. There's the um, kind of 1980 to 84 period, where the promotion's clearly still in its heyday. Uh, you know, you get that big match with uh, Bockwinkel versus uh, Vern Garnier. Um, you get the stuff with the high flyers and, you know, the arenas are still clearly full and they're playing big venues. And then you have the kind of 85, 86, 87 period where, uh, you know, Hennig, kind of Martel is the champ for a while and uh, Hennig is kind of working his way up the roster. And then finally, uh, you get the kind of real dying days, really 88, 89 time. Would everybody agree with that kind of breakdown? Yeah. 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 Yeah, in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things I wanted to ask the panel here is uh, what are the, some of the quirks of watching AWA as opposed to the other promotions that we might be more familiar with, like WF or Crockett, say? And uh, Peter, I'll ask you first. Well, I guess the big thing that jumps out is the... Um the tag matches, which all had, or all up through about 86, universally had a double face in peril segment, basically. You'd have uh, opening shine by the baby faces and then heat on one of them. They'd make a hot tag, and the whole process starts over again where the other baby face would shine for a bit. Then he'd get cut off, and then he'd get worked over. And um, they were able to work this formula even in matches that only went you know, 8 to 10 minutes. They weren't all 20-minute uh, matches. The only exceptions to this were like the cage matches, which were all worked uh, tornado style, basically. Uh, tornado style. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Uh, just all all four guys in the ring at once, with right, no yeah. tagging. Right. Yeah. Um, anything to add to that, to that, Pete? Oh uh, yeah, the tag thing was yeah exactly. We uh, really stood out uh, for the most part and stuff. Other things like it seemed was I thought it was really cool was like Hogan seemed like he was having like a lot of fun. As opposed to like thinking about his gimmick and thinking about how much money he was making, it seemed like he was actually enjoying himself. Yeah, and we will uh, we'll definitely talk a bit more about Hogan in a bit. And uh, Chad, any other kind of general yeah. comments about the AWA style to add? Yeah, I've a, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, their treatment of legends. Uh, Vern Gagne is very protective, even in the twilight of his career. Uh, we don't get a ton of the Crusher on this set, but he was extremely protected. Mad Dog with Sean. They really kind of, whereas I guess you, I mostly associate any legends, and they're called that. I mean, anybody that's called a legend in the ring, either being in a little showcase legend match, like uh, Great American Bash 1990 with mm-hmm. Harley Race and Tommy Rich or the Slamboree legend showcase matches, or uh, simply they just come out in like a tuxedo at the Hall of Fame ceremony like what modern WWE does now. So it was really kind of interesting to see in some cases, uh, main you know, main event level talent was bumping all over the place for Mad Dog Vachon and the <laughs> likes. Yeah, and uh, it, what was your other uh, point, Chad? 
Other thing is just uh, basically on the match structure, uh, the King of the Mountain spot. That's a spot that I'd obviously seen a decent amount in wrestling, but never gave much thought of. But the uh, heels, especially Bachwinkle, throughout this set, really used that spot as kind of a way to get a, a set of tone for the entire match. And I thought they did a good job of, once the heel uh, got control of the match, they would use that King of the Mountain spot, and then you'd start working towards the heat section. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, especially in Bockwinkle's matches, that King of the Mountain spot was super uh, noticeable. Um Peter or Pete, did, did, did either of you have much uh, experience of that King of the Mountain spot before watching this set? Not, for me, not really. Uh, a lot of times you see it like in like modern, not, not even modern, but in like in 80s WWF, they used the spot a lot. But yeah. they'd use it more so just to kill time. And it didn't really, it wasn't enhancing the match. It was actually hurting the match. Because you could tell like a lot of times Brett and Hennig work it in their 20-minute draws at MSG in Boston. Uh-huh. And they were using it more to like kill time to reach the twenty minutes as opposed to building uh, excitement in a match. Yeah, Peter, any experience of this yourself? Uh, pretty much the same thing Pete said. I mean, uh, WWF used it a lot in the eighties, but yeah, it was basically a way to try to work the crowd with taking as making as little uh, physical effort as possible, uh, rather than building a psychology around the match. See, my my experience of. Uh kind of king of the mountain spot if you want is is almost in reverse where especially in wwf you have the baby face who comes out clears the ring and it's usually the heel who's waiting to get in uh, is that not also a variation on this where i mean it, it's typically you know the heel bails early and then the heel can't get back into the ring like you know uh, we talk about ted dibiase chad i'm pretty sure like 90 percent of his matches have that <laughs> where he bails and then he doesn't get back in for quite a while yeah i mean i think uh honestly for when i started watching in the early 90s that's kind of the thing i must associate where uh the the heel will sort of bail or kind of he'll take the action to the outside when he gets the heat segment and throw somebody in the guardrail or whatever so it was kind of cool to see a heel taking control of the middle of the ring frustrating the face i mean it's a logical spot because it can kind of throw you off the game plan uh, from a logic standpoint. You're certainly at a disadvantage coming in because you expose yourself to punishment. So it's it's a really cool spot, and the AWA really utilized it well. I, I did I did actually just see a match from 1984 WWF. Dr. D. David Schultz versus uh, Hulk Hogan, where Hogan's like all bloodied up and they've censored the blood. And uh, Schultz uh, does the King of the Mountain spot against uh, Hogan in that match before Hogan absolutely kills him. So there we are. <laughs> you track that one down. Um, my, uh, my main comment was um, long shine sequences. Long, long shine sequences. Not, not just in the tag matches, but in the singles matches too. Especially in the first half of the decade where, I mean, it wouldn't just be... Uh, you know, a two-minute shine sequence. It would be maybe ten minute of shine sequence with a with a heel absolutely flying everywhere for the baby face. Would you all agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a uh, a good bit of shine sequences. I don't know. I mean, I think in the NWA with kind of what the term the blowjob baby face teams like Rock and Roll Express and Fantastics, you see that as well. 
Uh, but we did see that. It seemed like, from what I'd seen, kind of predated that because the high flyer matches in the first part of the set uh, featured a lot of kind of shine for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just seemed to be like um, it, it, usually the heel has to wait a little bit longer for the heat, uh, the heat or control segment. Um, but that may, may have just been me watching the early. Uh, can anybody remember those early earliest matches on the on the set where it felt like the baby faces were having an awful lot of the matches to me? Yeah, the AWA seemed to be a very uh, crowd pleasing territory. I guess much like the WWF. I mean, they had the heels were allowed to get heat, but they seemed to operate in the old send the home send the fans home happy mode. Or um, yeah. Okay, well, what we uh, what we did um, on the original uh, recording is that we um, we went around the group picking out workers, okay, to discuss. <laughs> now we can either discuss the same workers, uh, Chad, that we picked out with Brian and Dylan, or we can go round again and people can pick ones afresh. However, <laughs> the only caveat is that. Um, we, on that hour that we have coming up, uh, we do discuss some guys, so I may veto some choices. <laughs> um, so I, I'll just go around the group, and if you could pick a, uh, a worker that you'd like to discuss, and we, uh, we'll talk about them for a bit. So I'll start with you first, Peter. Anyone uh, in particular you'd like to highlight? Well, um, I think he only has one or two matches, but I feel like highlighting just because I was so surprised by him. But that would be Big John Stud, um, a guy Ooh. who I thought never, ever had a good performance in his career. And that's not just watching the WWF, but some stuff in Japan and the 70s in Mid-Atlantic. He really isn't any better in those settings. He turns in a genuinely really good performance in the tag match with Crusher Blackwell against the High Flyers. He... Um, Sells really well. He bumps really well. He takes a power slam from Brunzel. Um, I don't know why Brunzel didn't get fifteen thousand dollars for that, but uh, it, <laughs> Stud was the Stud was the better worker of the team in that match, and maybe it was just a fluke, but uh, that's what jumped out at me. Well, I, I can't even remember the uh, the uh, the Big John Stud. I can remember him appearing, but um, anybody else got any memories of the Big John Stud performance? I think yeah, that's. Remember him. Go uh, ahead, Pete. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. Chief. He was really good in the match uh, with against the High Flowers with Bow Black. Well, I really enjoyed the match. I think I had it like ranked as my fifth favorite match on that disc. Yeah, that that, that was super early on, right? The uh, the 1981 stud mm-hmm. match. Yeah, it was disc one. Is that is that the only time he actually appears on the set? Stud. Is that? His I only think appearance? it is. Wow, a one match wonder from uh, from uh, Pete there, Peter. <laughs> um, okay, well, any other comments on Stud before we uh, move around? I mean, I've always thought that he's one of these guys who just you know wasn't very good. So that's definitely the best match of his that I've seen. I remember enjoying that match. Yeah, I think you can make a case that uh, that's probably his best match and his personal best performance. Uh, to me, I mean, Stud is a guy that. He's certainly somebody that I know, but I wouldn't say I've seen an awful lot of him, really, at all. I mean, I've seen a handful of matches, but he is someone that I don't feel very familiar with. Kind of before the 1989 and the stuff with Andre uh, heading into WrestleMania 1, I don't feel like I've seen kind of outside of that window maybe 10 stud matches. 
and he's been pretty uh, pitiful in each one, uh, even on the uh, big guy, giant type scale that you sometimes give a curve to. Uh, that that match was uh, very good. That was a very good uh, tag team match. You had two big horses and Stud and Blackwell versus the High Flyers. I ended up having it ranked 57th overall, which is. Uh, you know, a, a good, solid, almost crack in the top third match, and kind of interesting. I'd be uh, be interested to know if there's a better stud match out there. Did uh, I'm really uh, I'm trying to think now. Didn't he win like a Royal Rumble or something, Big John Stud? Yeah, he won 89's yeah. Royal Rumble. Not only did he win 89's Royal Rumble, I happen to be at that Royal Rumble, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he did nothing for me at that Royal Rumble. <laughs> I'm pissed, pissed off with that because everybody knows who should have won that Royal Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on! I mean, he should have won it, right? Everything was set up. He should have. It was. Was, he had, he paid off the refs. He bought his number thirty spot. <laughs> <laughs> come on! Sorry, I was. Uh, that's uh, old wounds there. Um, you know, yeah, that's, really, that's, really... <laughs> that's another discussion for another time. But that still, to me, is one of the most kind of uh, head scratching booking decisions i've ever seen in that royal i mean 88 i can kind of see giving it to duggan because it wasn't really a feature match or they didn't know what it'd be by then but i mean 89 it was the main event they clearly put a lot of thought in the match with having axe and smash first and two and then the dbic storyline throughout the match and to have stud win it whether he was poised for a big push at the twilight of his career or not just seems very bizarre. It, it, it probably comes back to that old saying that you were talking about, Peter, uh, you know, send the fans home happy at all costs type thing, but, you know, oh well. Um, so, let's move on then. Uh, we talked a bit more about Big John Studd than I reckon most podcasts ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pete, what's, uh, what's your pick for a worker? Uh, how about Bockwinkle? Oh no, no, uh, we we no, we have gone to town on Bockwinkle. So okay, uh, Martell. All right, let's uh, let's talk about Martell. I'm happy with that one. I thought he was an awesome fired up baby face. Uh, I thought he was like even at a higher level than watching like Steamboat and Ricky Morton at times working. Uh, his one drawback was that slingshot. He always uh, ate it with the knees into the gut. But his, his little dance, little fired-up dance, and he had good psychology working. Like, he could work a body part. Like, him and Bockwinkle stuff was just fantastic. But he was even having good matches with Boris Zukov and stuff. It was just... Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I always knew he was a good worker, but watching him in the AD, AWA really uh, opened my eyes because most of my stuff with Martel was when he was came made his comeback on Nitro and his and his his strike force stuff in the WWF because uh, his heel work really wasn't all that great. It was mediocre to solid in the WWF. So watching him work his full fledged babyface stuff really wants me to track down a lot of his Quebec stuff, his uh, Montreal and his international stuff. Because I mean he he looked great here on this set. He looked really strong on the all Japan all Japan set when he's working with the guys. Yeah. Um, he's just a really good baby face. Yeah, Peter, any, anything to add? I find it interesting that uh, Pete compared him to Steamboat because that's the comparison I've been making too. And I'm not sure that Martel doesn't come across as better when you compare the age of the All Japan work where I thought he outworked Steamboat. And mm. uh, Steamboat's not on this set, obviously, but um, 
I, I would put this up, up against just about anything Steamboat did in the NWA, at least before 1989. Well, it's, it's been one of the big talking points uh, with you on, on this show, uh, Chad, ongoing, that you've always criticized, I'd say always, but you're a little bit more critical of Steamboat than a lot of people. And you, Isn't it that you uh, say that he, he lacks fire sometimes? Uh, yeah, that's that's something I have, and I think this is an interesting uh, venue where we can kind of compare Martell and Steamboat because I know Pete is personally a real big Steamboat fan. Uh, so, so I will say that Martell on this set really kind of opened my eyes. I mean, I've always liked his arrogance character, but I can kind of also see that it's in the Mr. Perfect vein where it's a character first work rate second uh, type deal throughout his WWF run. The glimpses we saw of him in all Japan, I thought was uh, very good. I mean, I enjoyed his uh, Choshu matches, but here he really stepped up and elevated himself in my eyes. Uh, actually, as we were just talking, I was watching the uh, wrestle rock match him versus Harley race. And that match kind of kind of blew me away again on this second watch and he is fabulous in that match showing great fire uh there's one sequence in that match where he fires back with four just insanely stiff punches right to harley race's face uh so he was he was very good at kind of looking like a clean cut baby face coming in but not afraid to kind of rough it up and mix it up and uh really build sympathy for himself yeah, and well, I mean, a couple of things with Martel, right? Um, when when you look at what you need to have a, you know, for a great babyface performance, he can uh, generate sympathy, right? And he's great at taking a beating. He's really good at selling. And I can't remember. I can never remember what the match is, but there's a particular match here where uh, he's pulling the apron. Do you remember that uh, spot there? Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. I th- that's with. Uh, is that with Saito? Pretty sure it's with one of the Saito, yes. Or, or is it that Jimmy Garvin match? Or no, it's Saito. I think you're right, but I mean that that's such a simple spot. But he really looks like he's dying in that hold, you know, and he's grabbing the apron. He he looks like he's taking a tremendous beating there. And then I think you've all mentioned it. His fire is. I, I mean, I'd, I'd say it's up there with the best kind of. He he does the best kind of fire that I I can remember seeing of anyone. I'd put him up there with. Uh, I mean, who else would you compare him to? He's, I think he's better than Steamboat when it comes to the uh, the firing up part, certainly. But that's that's my personal take, and this uh, this set showed that I think. And I think when yeah when the Portland set comes out, yeah I think it's going to open up even more eyes because he gets to work Buddy Rose, and he has two tremendous matches with Buddy Rose that made tape. He has another one with Harley down there in Portland that's awesome. And he worked with Piper as a tag team against the Sheepers a few times, and they're all just great matches. Oh, I, I look forward to that stuff. And I, Chad, I should mention that um, that Harley Race match was one that I went wild for as well. I thought it's just, uh, you know, you won't see a better match like in a vacuum. You know, no co- no real context, just a just a big sh- big show match out of nowhere where they're throwing bombs, and it's a lot of fun. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I added, added uh, outside my top 20, but uh, I'm thinking I'm going to have to do some re-slotting, and it'll probably slide in uh, right now. But so uh, I guess we can kind of go around, and I'll start with you, Parv. 
there's been discussion in the last couple of days with sort of a tier system of workers. Yeah. And I'm kind of interested where Martell would slot in. Uh, I mean, me, I kind of still am, I guess, a little weary because, I mean, it feels like I've seen a decent amount to judge, mm. but it doesn't seem like I've seen as much of him as a lot of other people. Like, I've certainly seen more Steamboat than Rick Martell still or actually analyzed matches. I haven't really sat out and analyzed a lot of those uh, Rick the Model matches in a while. Um, so I'm kind of wondering where you would slide out. I mean, for me personally, I'd probably be a Tier 3, I guess, and then the Portland stuff may uh, may even elevate him more. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that Nick Bockwinkle says, and I, he says it on one of those, um, I think he says it on the 70s Legends of Wrestling show, or, uh, or it could have been the tag teams one. It, it, he, you know, he makes the appearance on the 24-7 Legends of Wrestling show. Oh, okay. Bock, Bock, Bockwinkle says on there that um, they kind of missed a boat on Martel. That, like, they gave him the run in 85. Actually, it was too late by then. They should have made him the champ in 1980 because he was even better in 1980 than he was in 1985. So that interested me because it suggests that. And uh, from what you're saying about the Portland stuff... Uh, Pete, uh, this seems like it's true. That it seems like he was even better uh, before this point. So maybe this is even not. Maybe this '85 stuff is not even Pete Martel. But from the stuff I've seen, he's about the tier tier three as well. Um, unlike Steamboat, he doesn't quite have that bevy of like you know five star matches that I've seen. They're all kind of like four star solid efforts, from what I can remember, both on the All Japan set and on this set. There's not like that one classic match there. Would you agree? For me, the Mr. Saito match is probably uh, the closest I can think. That's a uh, that's a uh, top twenty match for me. I mean, I don't know a star rating rise. It'd probably be about four and a quarter uh, around that area. I thought that was a really great match, though. Pete. I was pretty blown away by a lot of his matches on this AWA set. Um, I mean, I, I thought him and uh, Bachwinkle and Martel hit a, hit a couple four-and-a-half-star matches uh, on the set. Uh, nothing at the five-star range. I loved his match. He had a great match with Jumbo on the set that I loved because it was another, like, bomb-throwing affair and stuff. Um, again, I'd probably have, I'd have him in a Tier 3, maybe a Tier 2. Um, I've seen, I think I've seen a little bit more than you guys. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but I, again, his, his model work does hurt him a little cause it's not as, I mean, it's still it's solid work, but it's just not, it's not as good as the stuff in the AWA in Portland. Right. Pizza. Well, as I, as I alluded to with the 89 matches with Steamboat, that's where Steamboat does have him beat is the really high-end classics because you got the three matches with Flair and you've got the final conflict too, which might also be a better match than anything Martell has. Uh, that said, I had um, the August 16th of 84 uh, Bachwinkle-Martell match at number five and uh, I had it as the best singles match of the set to that point. It got surpassed a little bit later, but... Um, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I don't think I'd have a problem calling that about four and a half stars. I don't. I don't. I don't think. Yeah. Do, do, I mean, do you think that you say the uh, the model work hurts him a little bit? Do you think there's an argument to say that um, he just wasn't being played to his strengths there, though? That you know, this guy is you know, he is good at being a babyface, and therefore don't play him as a heel. 
Oh, he's probably far way better baby face. Uh, but, I mean, it's still, steel work still was pretty good. Like, I mean, that Jake the Snake uh, blindfold match. I mean, uh-huh. that's... Uh, I love that match. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, he's got, like, he has that weird feud with uh, match and Sean, stuff. doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, but a lot of that... ...stepped up to the plate. And it was, it was great to be... It was, he followed Jake perfectly in that match. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good angle overall uh, in late 90, early 91. That's kind of, I know uh, Peter just went through that fairly recently in the 91 yeah. yearbook, and that was uh, very fun to watch develop. Yeah, I, I, and I, I think that's one of those matches. Uh, uh, Justin and Scott talked to Scott, Scott Keith recently, right? <laughs> but that's one of those matches that Scott Keith would instantly give a dud rating to, isn't it? Negative stars, probably. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's a match where I don't. I mean, if you want to say like, what's the greatest matches of 1991? It's probably not going to be on like a top 25 list. But if you want to start talking about what's a uh, one of the smartest work matches of 1991 and kind of making a case for someone as a worker, I think that's not a bad match to bring up as an example. That, that's a match that almost uh, defies any kind of star rating, I would think. Yeah, and it's just yeah. a, it just gets yeah. an NA if you're going to try to give it yeah, a rating. Yeah. There's so much garbage going on in the match, but that was, well, that's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, no, I, I, I mean, it, I think uh, it's definitely the most memorable thing I can think of for the model. But I was going to say that didn't he have a match with Shawn Michaels at some point in '92? Is that any good? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, that's at SummerSlam. Yeah, the, the no hitting in the face match. Face which, uh, right. I'm, I'm coming up on that watching the '92 yearbook, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't, I don't think it made the yearbook. Uh, but uh, with a little more time, I probably would have made the cut. I would think it's a, it's a fun little match with. Uh, it's a very, that's a very rare heel versus heel feud. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like this stuff with Ma when he feuded with Santana. I thought the matches were solid. You know. I mean, with that type of talent in there, it sure better be. Did they ever get a proper blow off those guys? Because uh, it seemed like they never did on the big shows, on the big uh, pay-per-view shows, at least. No, it would always they were used on Saturday night main events. Uh, something like maybe like a Survivor Series showdown when they were on opposing teams. I'm sure, and I know they worked tons of Madison Square Garden here in Houston. They worked like almost like uh, like the first marquee match they'd show. Here in the Houston House show, so I mean that wasn't televised or anything, but you know, you know what's awesome about that? It's like '93 and t- like in the Royal Rumble, Tito's still like that's his one reason to be there to go after the model. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Tito, we should mention that they've got a pretty good early outing here on this disc as well on the uh, on the set. It's um, it was against the High Flyers. Remember that match from '82? Yes. Yeah, that's the one right, that right. Uh, we have. What about? How many minutes of that match actually was clipped? Uh, about eight minutes, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think we get, what, about 12 minutes or so out of 19 or something like that. Uh, the finishing stretch was really high. That for, uh, I mean, we're talking about August of 1982. That was worked as a very kind of hot, high-octane, exciting finish with a uh, pre-strike force uh, Martel Santana versus the High Flyers. Uh, I think in the pre before the set, that was kind of when I listened to the podcast before the set and heard kind of the rumblings. That was a match I'd never seen before, but it was getting a lot of hype. So I was I was kind of prepared for it. 
but it lived up to my expectations. I have that as in my top 25. I thought that was a great uh, athletic contest. And I, no, I think it's fair to say, coming off the All Japan set, we were all kind of looking out for Rick Martel on this set, right? I mean, we were. he was one of the guys who you'd look down the, the list of matches before it came out, and you'd think, right, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing that match because Martel's in it and I want to see more of Martel. Um, were there any other guys in that kind of boat who, who you were looking out for before the set came out? And I'll ask you, Chad. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but Bachwinkle. I mean, Bachwinkle is yeah, somebody obviously. I'd never watched much, and uh, the Billy Robinson match was great. I actually liked the Funk match a good bit, uh, too. So that, I guess, is probably the only one I can. I mean, I was interested to see Jumbo in an American setting. Yeah. Uh, so you had that as well. Well, what about, I'll mention a guy, because um, for me, like, I think our friend Dylan, <laughs> who you're, you'll have already heard earlier in the show, and you'll hear him later on, um, talked about this guy so much <laughs> before, the set, before the set came out that it was almost impossible not to go into the set without some expectation of uh, Crusher Blackwell. Would you all agree with that? We were... Yeah. I mean, yeah. I... Yeah, you were all like, because uh, uh, I mean, Dylan was like, you know, he's got like the longest thread in the world on uh, on Blackwell, and he must have talked about him on his uh, wrestling culture show for, you know, good couple of hours. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I was thinking, well, like, is this a case where Dylan is just hyping this guy, or is he really that good? You know, I, I, I honestly, because he went on about him so much, that I, I came into the set thinking, this guy can't possibly meet the hype, can he? Um, so I, I mean, I, I'll just say straight away that he, I think he did meet the hype, um, as far as I was concerned, but I'll just go around the group for, for thoughts on, uh, on Blackwell. I'll start with you first, Pete. Yeah. Uh, growing up in St. Louis, he was in St. Louis territory a lot. So I got to see him on Saturday morning television a lot. Uh, of course, because my parents, my dad was not a wrestling fan. We never went to see St. Louis at the uh, checker dome or anything. Uh, but I'd see a lot of them on 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 Saturday mornings uh, and stuff because he they, they pushed him pretty heavily in uh, St. Louis, and as in, either in a main event or a sub main event, he held the Missouri title, I believe. I mean, he was really pushed in there. But for most of my other things, I mean, from what every time I've seen him on tape, I was always impressed with him because he just bumped so big for a guy that size. Where you look at him, you look you look like he should be like in a walker because he's so dang fat that he couldn't uh, walk on his own, let alone do these amazing bumps uh, and stuff and just really just have exciting matches. Yeah, and it, like his interesting, you said <laughs> he should be on a walker because I'd, I'd say that uh, Blackwell is a certain type of fat, right? He's not like kind of like... Um, you know, like Vader or someone like that. He's more towards, I don't know, like, who else is, like, maybe Norman the Lunatic has got that type of fat, you know? It's yeah, kind of like yes. Disgusting, kind of like, flowing you see over people, fat. You're like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Save some of the steak for me. <laughs> um, Peter, any thoughts on Blackwell? Uh, yeah, he, he, he uh, thrived in a number of different settings. He was probably just as good as a as a baby face as he was a heel. Um, he bumped big, but he also made the baby faces uh, earn those bumps with that uh, weeble wobble selling he did. He would just where he comes this close to falling over, and the baby faces just bouncing off the ropes, uh, just trying to knock him down. And when he does, it takes this big, huge uh, back bump, and um, 
that, that looks great, but he, he makes the baby faces earn it instead of just uh, bumping around uh, willy nilly. Yeah, and he has a ton of offense too. I mean, he's got he's got he drops headbutts, he drops elbows, he comes off the ropes, he has a drop kick, um, he got the fallaway slam, the Samoan drop. I mean, he's got he's not he's not just bumping and selling either. Chad, any uh, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think Blackwell certainly can be one of the stars of the set. Um, he does a ton of things well. I know, personally, my favorite thing is the magnitude that he puts into his bumps. Uh, like in uh, certain matches where he does go to the top rope and he comes crashing down. Uh, that that really feels like a dangerous spot. I mean, watching him up there fall, uh, it's it's kind of, in some ways, it feels basic because it's a flat, fat guy doing a big splash off the top, but... Just the magnitude he comes down in with all his weight and the way he commits to it to where you won't know if he's going to hit or miss the move until the last split second and he does the move the exact same way uh, either way is, I think, uh, very comparable to him. He's a bumping machine. Um, I think uh, really with the cage matches, probably one of the best cage match wrestlers I've seen as far as just throwing himself into the cage, bumping around like a crazy man, and uh, getting over the cage gimmick. Yeah, uh, d- so fantastic. D- does anyone actually take a cage bump uh, better than you know taking that face first bump into the cage better than Blackwell? I can't think of anybody right offhand. I mean, maybe uh, Ricky Morton. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, but like Ricky Morton's about 100 pounds. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, we're talking about somebody that's like, yeah, about three Ricky Mortons at least. Because he doesn't, do, he, like, he flies, you know, he's flying through the air into the cage like a torpedo, yeah. like a massive fat torpedo. Right. Um, it, it, it was interesting you mentioned St. Louis, Pete, because uh, I've been listening to those uh, Larry Matisic shows the uh, past couple of days. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he mentions uh, that Sam Muchnick was a guy who didn't like gimmicks. He didn't like fat men. He didn't like people. Like he he liked a certain body shape, and uh, he was always like he never wanted to bring guys like that into the St. Louis uh, kind of area um, until he saw Blackwell work. And from that moment, he was like, "Well, Blackwell's so good, he can be part of my promotion." So it was actually really unusual for a guy like Blackwell to. Uh, be the Missouri State champ, for example, if you look at the other champions they had. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, then again, he also pushed Dick the Bruiser uh, pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> True. Uh, so I think he learned whoever could draw him money, he could push hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's true also. Um, so uh, any other the, the Blackwell stuff? I mean, his, uh, the cage match stuff with the... Uh, East-West connection, taking it on the high flyers, is probably the best. Uh, Would those be his best best matches on this set? I, I actually thought that uh, Sheik Adnan Al Casey was really good in those matches. Like uh, whenever Al Casey had to be in a match, he was he was amazing. Did everybody else agree? Uh, yeah, he was pretty good in those cage matches. I think actually the that cage match though, the uh, Blackwell and Sheik Adnan Al Casey versus High Flyers match from four eighteen nineteen eighty two, that's uh, of the Blackwell cage matches. That's my uh, third ranked one right now. I have the Crusher and Greg Gagne versus Blackwell and Sheik Adnan Al Casey from three twenty five nineteen eighty four. 
as a number 17. And then my number eight match actually is a King Tonga mass superstar and Sheik Adnan Al Casey versus a, a baby face Crusher Blackwell and Sergeant Slaughter from 42185. Wow. Yeah, I, I really like that of, match. I've got both of those Blackwell and Adnan uh, cage matches in my top 10, actually. I might be the high vote on both of them, but uh, that's how I saw it. Yeah. Sure, you got your rankings sorted, or no, not at all. I just have them broken down by disc. I still <laughs> yeah. got to put a bout together. Since when Death Valley Driver went down, I just didn't, you know, no reason to put a bout together. Well, I'm still, I will eventually will. I mean, have they even put out a, a deadline yet? The 15th, yeah, they I have. believe. Yeah, yeah, September fifteenth. I believe so it's September fifteenth. It? I believe it's September fifteenth. Okay, then I better hurry up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'll tell you. If they don't put the um, the eighties project back up, I won't be able to do it because I, I can't remember my ratings for the first couple of discs there. <laughs> you, you got to keep a, uh, you got to keep a word document separate. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I, I've, I've learned that the hard way with my uh, nineteen ninety four rankings that have went somewhere. <laughs> Um, I I used I used to have a little um little like written notepad little black written notepad but it got too um it got too full and since um I haven't bought a new one which is why which is why I don't write things down anymore so there we are I mean hopefully it'll be recovered by then I think that'll help a lot of people and uh, just to see everybody's thoughts because that's what I always like to do like just going back now that I've watched that uh. Race versus Martel match. I'd love to go back in that thread and see what everybody said. But yeah, and no, I, I was very amused by your post the other day, Chad. You said you want to get Matt D's AWA posts and put them all together in a book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought it amused me a lot. It made me laugh. That, that feels that feels like a Kindle collection that's just ready to be compiled as Matt D wrestling reviews. Chill it for that 99 did, cents. Yeah, I do think there's a market there. Even, I mean, his Portland views. I mean, I, uh, I, I love, I love Matt D's reviews, but those are the type of things. I don't know, kind of what I'd kind of compare them to, like the All Japan 1990s main event. I don't think those are the type of reviews where if I've got two minutes at work to spare and I'm just sort of flying through the forum. I can kind of read one of those. That's where I uh, literally have to stop everything I'm doing and concentrate on what's going on and uh, what the theme he's trying to get over with. No, Matt D, one of the guys who made uh, taking part in the uh, AWA sat a lot of fun, I think. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sorry, I mentioned the East-West connection there. That's, uh, that's of course, uh, Patera and uh, Ventura, right? Is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so sorry, I was uh, I was thinking about the sh- what do they call themselves? The sheep. So East East West is Ventura and Adonis. Uh, Ventura, oh, sorry, Ventura and Adonis, right? You're probably thinking about North South with uh, yeah. Adonis and uh, Murdoch. The, the sheiks are Blackwell and Patera. That's what I'm thinking of. It, yes. it, it, it's usually those. It's those two plus um, Sheik Adnan in a three on two situation. That's the particular match I'm thinking of. There was one like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, uh, my other question here, just before we get off uh, Blackwell and Sheik Adnan, is: uh, Has anyone here ever like broke their arm or had it in a cast? Or yeah, uh, yes, yeah, I have too. Actually. How uh, out of interest? How long did you have the uh, cast on the arm for? 
I'm thinking like eight weeks, maybe, or six weeks. Probably yeah, six minus weeks. six weeks. Because yeah. uh, she got none of Casey. Seems like he had a broken arm from about 1981 to about 1985. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because he went to uh, Bob Orton Jr.'s doctor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, they both they both had the same uh, orthopedic individual. Um, they got off easy compared to Iron Mike Sharp, though. You've been watching All-Star Wrestling, produced by the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club in wrestling arenas throughout the world. Executive producer, Vern Gagne. has been an American Wrestling Association sports presentation.